Welcome everyone to Talking Volumes. I'm going to say that this night has been a long, long time in coming. I am thrilled at long last to welcome William Kent Kruger to the stage of the Fitzgerald Theater for Talking Volumes. We've never done this before. Um, here. You know, I, I, I got to tell you, I am just so thrilled to be here this <laughs> evening. I'm so honored to be a part of this legendary program. Thank you, Karen. No, thank you, Ken. It's great to have you here. What you've done with Lightning Strike as a prequel is an interesting endeavor for an author who has spent, what, is it 22, 23 years? How long writing this character of Cork O'Connor? Well, I actually began writing the character in 1992. Okay. I didn't publish that particular piece until 1998. Um, so from 1998, and so 23 years now, um, Cork and I have been together as, as, you know, published. Thank you, Cork. <laughs> so, so this is, as said, is, a, is an interesting endeavor to write a character and develop a character that long and then go back into that life, that childhood, and reveal what, lay a foundation of the man and the character that Cork is going to be. So I'm interested in how you thought about that as you began the prequel. You make it sound a lot harder than it actually was. You know, I've, uh, I've lived with Cork for so long that who he is as a man, um, I know quite well. Although I'm always discovering new and interesting sides to Cork that I wasn't aware of. But um, it was easy for me to imagine Cork as a kid. And I have to be perfectly frank with you. Um, the way I imagined Cork as a kid was kind of the way I was as a kid. Okay. There's a lot about Cork at 12 years of age that was just like I was at 12 years of age. Cork was a Boy Scout. Um, I was a Boy Scout. Uh, Cork at, uh, at that age has a couple of, he has, I think, three paper routes. Mm. I had three paper <laughs> routes. Um, so, yeah, it, it was easy for me to tap into what I remember as an adolescent male and, uh, and give Cork a lot of that background. The other thing that you were doing all along as you developed Cork as a character, I would think, is imbuing him with certain qualities, characteristics, that, that you were going to live with through the long haul, right? I mean, this is not you knew. <laughs> this is not a character at some point you knew. This is a character that you, were gonna, you and we, the readers, were going to live with for a while. So... I'm curious about how you thought about the characters, that, the characteristics that you would imbue his personality with and how they would evolve over the long, the long term. Oh, you credit me with a great deal more vision than I actually had. When I was writing the first book in the Cork O'Connor series, Iron Lake, I just wanted to write a manuscript that was good enough somebody might actually want to publish it. And I wasn't thinking much beyond that. Um, but as I was creating the Cork O'Connor character, I was making choices about who he was. Right. Not necessarily who he was going to be through 18 novels, but who he was for that particular work. And uh, so I made him a lot like me. Um, <laughs> so Cork, Cork's a family man. I'm a family man. Um, I gave Cork a lot of the 
the moral compass that I have. Mm-hmm. Quark is a man who believes that um, that you make commitments in this life, and come hell or high water, you stand by those commitments. And I believe that. Quark believes that one of the reasons we're put on this earth is to seek justice for others. I believe that. Quark believes that in this life, family is probably the most significant relationship any of us are ever going to know. Uh, and, uh, and that's what I believe as well. So creating Quark out of a lot of my own perceptions was not a difficult thing to do. I'm not native to Minnesota. I didn't move here until I was about 30 years old mm-hmm. so my wife could go to the U of M Law School. And uh, before that, I was a gypsy kid. I lived all over the place. I never had anywhere that I really thought of or called home. Uh, but I swear to God, the minute I set foot in Minnesota, I knew I'd found home. I fell in love with this place. So I always knew when I got serious about my writing, uh, whatever I did was going to be kind of a homage to, to Minnesota, to this adopted home. And uh, shortly after we moved here... Uh, we began doing what everybody in the Twin Cities does in the summer. We started vacationing up north. So uh, we began spending uh, part of every summer at a YMCA camp north of Ely, a place called Camp de Nord. How many of you? Yeah, Camp de Nord. Which is, for those of you who don't know it, it's literally across the road from the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. And when I discovered that remarkable territory, I knew this is what I want to write about. When I took a really good look at northern Minnesota, I realized you can't write a story set in northern Minnesota without including the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabeg, as an element of the work because their influence up there is ubiquitous. It's everywhere and it's powerful. So I decided I was going to include um, the Ojibwe culture as one of the things that I would write about. Now, Fiction Writing 101. Mm -hmm. When you're a fiction writer, what are you looking for? You're looking for conflict, Mm -hmm. because it's conflict that drives great stories. And when I looked up north, that's what I saw was conflict. Conflict in the the weather, conflict in that rugged landscape, conflict in the cultures that are trying to live up there together, and often not doing a particularly good job of it. But when I thought about the issue of conflict more specifically, I thought, what if I created a character who, in who he was, could mirror the conflict of, of those two cultures, White and Ojibwe? And that's when I decided to make Cork um, a part Ojibwe. What did I know about the, the culture of the Anishinaabeg? Nothing, which is what most white people know, right? Um, but I was a cultural anthropology major in college, and so the idea of learning about this culture, not my own, was exciting. And so I began, began in the way every good academic begins. I began by reading. I read everything I could get my hands on. In the course of my research, I began to uh, meet and form relationships with folks inside the Ojibwe community, uh, relationships that have become important friendships to me over the years. And, uh, and so the Cork naturally evolved out of all of that. So a lot of questions come to mind about what you've just said. Let me go back to what you said about imbuing Cork with the moral compass that you identify with. I feel like one of the tensions, one of the conflicts in his character, and we see it really clearly in what's happening with his father in this novel and what he's witnessing, is this idea of what it means to hold your integrity as a high value and what happens when people don't perceive you that way or question your integrity. I mean, this is happening to Liam, Cork's father in the novel. And Cork is seeing what, and will experience this, seeing what that means to a person to have your integrity questioned. 
uh, that was not, I feel like we are seeing the making of that experience in Cork that's going to become very important for, for his life. W- will you reflect on that for a minute? Sure. Enlightening, for those of you who don't know anything about my Cork O'Connor series, <laughs> um, Cork is actually uh, one quarter Ojibwe, Anishinaabe, and three quarters Irish. So he doesn't, in my own, I, I never describe Cork because my own belief is readers need to be able to see Cork in a way that works for them. Um, but I see him resembling more his Irish heritage than his Ojibwe heritage. Mm-hmm. And so he is a kid who is growing up in his own perception one way. And then in lightning strike, he begins to become aware that the rest of Tamarack County, Aurora, Minnesota, think of him in another way. Mm-hmm. And what they see in him is the Ojibwe blood. And so he becomes aware, he becomes aware that uh, a lot of the, um, the unfortunate uh, names that we put on Native Americans are being applied to him as well. And he becomes aware that it's not just him, but it's his father. Right. And it's his mother, and it's his grandmother. And so suddenly he is thrust into this world that now is beginning to make less and less sense to him. And he's having to figure out, okay, what's this world really like? And who am I in this world? Which is part of this story. But isn't that part of everybody's story, right? right? right. He's seeing as a child what it means to have a beloved parent, his father, his motives, again, his integrity, his own moral compass question. That is a formative experience for a child, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Say more. So, when I was, the summer I was 13 years old, um, formative, very formative summer for me, my father got fired from his job. He had, he had started out his career as an English, high school English teacher in Wyoming, um, but once he'd had three children, he realized they weren't paying teachers enough, English teachers at any rate, enough to raise a family, so he left teaching and he joined the oil business, which is why I moved around a whole lot as a kid. When I was 13 years old, my father was head of the, uh, what would would be human relations division of a large chemical plant in Ohio. And, um, And I knew that it was putting a great deal of pressure on his his belief system, because he would be on one side of a negotiating table for the company, dealing with all of the workers, the people who represented the workers. And his heart was with the workers. He hired the first black engineer that had ever been hired in that chemical company, and he took an enormous amount of flack for it. And finally they fired him because it was clear that his belief system was not theirs. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember 
feeling at first, oh, Dad, that's so horrible. That's, you got fired. And then as I began to understand it more, it was like, oh, Dad, I'm really glad that happened. You stood up for what you believed in. And then he went back to teaching, which is what he really loved. So there's a moral there for you. <laughs> How did, do you remember your dad explaining to you what had, what had happened? The night that he was fired, maybe overhearing your parents talking about it or what he said to you? Yeah, I don't remember him explaining it that night, but I remember in the course of everything, um, it became clear to us that he was, he was in an environment that was poisonous to him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the separation was, was a very good thing. And maybe because, you know, he was a family man and he felt like he had to support the family, he stayed with this job much longer than, than was probably healthy for him. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it was his, uh, his employer who said, you know, it's time for you to go. They saw it before he did or before he was willing to do that. But in the end, it was a good thing. And he explained to us essentially the difference, the importance of his values to him and how they collided with the values of that particular world and how his decision then to go back to teaching, I've got to tell you, he became a different man. And we embarked on, uh, on one of the greatest adventures of our lives as we began moving kind of from place to place with him as a teacher following, you know, following his heart, which, you know, was a huge a huge model for me. Follow your heart. Have you ever had a, an era in your life where you felt like you were at odds with your moral compass, where you were not living up to letting integrity guide your decision-making, or just somehow you'd veered away from that moral compass that you believe is at the heart of your identity? Uh, yeah, once. Oh, you want me to talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. What do you think we're doing here, Ken? <laughs> so, um, Vietnam. We'll go back in history a bit. Um, I was... Uh, I went to Stanford University. and <laughs> I got kicked out of Stanford University. For? for all the right reasons. <laughs> for what? Um, st- when I went to Stanford, I, I matriculated at Stanford in 1969. This was at the height of the Vietnam War. And Stanford had a relationship with an organization called the Stanford Research Institute at that point in time, whose primary source of income then was uh, research into military weaponry. There were a lot of us at Stanford who felt that that was a really inappropriate relationship for an institution like Stanford to maintain, particularly at that point in time. Um, so we, we petitioned the, um, the uh, uh, board of directors, the trustees, to sever the relationship. We petitioned the administration. We marched. We sat in. Of course, nobody paid any attention to us because there were huge sums of money involved. And finally, um, in frustration, a group of us marched into the administration building one day and occupied it. Uh, the president, a guy named Richard Lyman, was pretty reasonable. He said, I'm not going to give you any problem. Uh, he vacated the building, and we took it over. That night, about 8 o'clock, we had a band come in, 
And, uh, and, and we held a dance where typically we would have been registering. And uh, at midnight, the band packed up and took off. And those of us who were going to occupy uh, the, the administration building rolled out our sleeping bags and went to sleep. Huge tactical error. <laughs> because at 1 o'clock, the Palo Alto riot squad swept through oh, and, uh, and arrested us all. I was on a, I was on a full scholarship... Uh, it evaporated, really? yeah, and oh so I had to, leave, had to leave school. So, now that was not when I moved that, away from my That parents. aligned with your moral compass, yeah, right? Yeah, but what happened the next year was um, the school that I went into after that um, didn't accept all of my credits from Stanford because, as the, administ- the admissions officer explained to me, we have to be very careful about the institutions we accept credits from. <laughs> So suddenly, uh, I, I lost my student status, my student deferment, and I was drafted. Oh, wow. So I, uh, I was really in a dilemma. I didn't believe in the war. My brother was a conscientious objector. Um, I wasn't sure what I should do, but I went to my uh, pre-induction physical. I completed all of that. And that's the point where, you know, I thought, you go into the Army, that's what you do, or you go to jail. And I didn't want to do either of those things, but I, didn't, I really didn't want to go to jail. And I really didn't, I didn't believe in what we were doing in Vietnam enough to really want to participate in that. So I was, I was about to crack. Oh, there are angels in this world, people, and here's a case in point. I went to, I went to my draft board. I had some issue that I needed to resolve with them. And I'd been down there many times, and when I walked into the draft board that day, there was an elderly woman there who had never been there before. And I explained to her what I, what I needed or whatever, and she looked up at me and she said, You don't want to go to war, do you, honey? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, No, ma'am, I don't. <laughs> And she explained what I needed, and nobody had ever done this. She explained exactly what I needed to do to reinstate my, my student deferment in very clear steps. I went back to the draft board several times after that for various reasons, and I never saw her again. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, magic yeah. in some ways, right? Yeah. So that year gave you a glimpse of what it might be like to have to, because of all these events that had happened, do something that was so antithetical to... Certainly contemplate it, yeah. What'd you take away from that? That there are angels in this world. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know, I think circumstances um, sometimes... I think there is. A, I think the arc of the universe bends toward justice. Martin Luther King. Yeah. I think he was quoting someone else, um, and that if you if you hold to your guns, if you stand by what you believe, eventually you are vindicated. People will understand. I mean, even if in the moment that doesn't happen, and I mean, look at so many examples in history where people didn't understand what was occurring and later on it's like, oh, 
Well, we get it now. Mm-hmm. We understand what you were saying. So, yeah. Did I answer the question? Yeah. Yes, you did. <laughs> I feel like I've been rambling. Yeah. Not at all. This is also a novel, as, as we were discussing downstairs in the green room of fathers and sons. And I value how genuine this relationship feels. It is not saccharine. There's times when Liam, Cork's father, who's a sheriff and under a lot of pressure, is terse with his son or doesn't explain in the moment that he probably should. Um, And Cork has an opportunity to see what it means to, what what the real world brings, right, into your home and into your loved one's circle, which again is a really foundational kind of transformational experience. Um, now that you've said that so much of this is autobiographical, I'm, I'm curious about how you look back on the relationship with your dad and how much of that has ended up in the tenor of this relationship of these two. Uh, I'm sure a great deal of it is there. In the relationship, I think, it, and maybe this is true from women and their mothers, but certainly in the relationship that men, when they're young, have with their fathers as we move into our adolescence and begin to have a sense that I'm somebody else, maybe, than you have wanted me to be. Mm. And I need to know who that is. Um, Conflict arises. You begin to question values. You begin to question actions. You begin to question motives. And we're certainly seeing that in Cork's relationship with his father. Um, and I certainly went through that as well. But I, I think I questioned my father less simply because our circumstances were such when I was going through my adolescence that we, as a family, had to, had to pull together. When father lost his job, then when Vietnam rolled around, my father took a stand against the war and was essentially fired from his teaching job. Wow. Um, and, and so we had to move as a result of that. So, so more than, than um, conflict with my father, I think I was just learning lesson after lesson after lesson. Uh, it was only later when I had children of my own, and uh, he was trying to tell me how to raise them, that problems arose. <laughs> but you saw, I mean, you saw your father, you really began to understand what loss looks like for for standing up for what you believe i don't th- you know i don't think being put to the test like that in a f- happens all that often in a family i mean that's a remarkable thing that your father did and showed you know his children what that means to do what 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 that means yeah, he was a pretty remarkable guy. What can I say? I, uh, I, I loved him dearly. Um, well, as long as we're on my father, let me tell you another father story. Good. So my father was a teacher in the school that uh, the last year he taught in this school um, was when he left because of his, his stand in Vietnam, which conflicted with the school board. 
and, uh, and much of the community. But on graduation, at the graduation ceremony, the senior class stood up and they sang to him to serve with love. That was my father. And so that brings me back to this relationship between Cork and Liam. It, it feels, as I said, genuine and fraught with all the, all the winds that are buffeting Liam and his career and his relationships and his standing in the community. Now I understand a little more about where this, where you've drawn this from. Do you know, and the story, for those of you who haven't had a chance uh, to read Lightning Strike, but you should. Um, <laughs> and you will. <laughs> it's not just from Cork's point of view, it's also from his father's point of view. Right. So as Cork is struggling to understand his father, the reasons for his father's decisions, why his father doesn't quite get the perspective that Cork, because he has Ojibwe blood in him, mm-hmm. shares really with his, his mother's side, the Ojibwe side of him. Liam is also trying to understand his son. And Liam is a little less like my father in that Liam has difficulty telling his son that he loves him. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not a man who really embraces his son, hugs his son, which my father did all the time. Uh, and, and maybe it was more like, probably more like fathers of that generation mm-hmm. who didn't really, weren't demonstrative in, in expressing their love uh, for, the, for their sons or maybe their children or maybe even their wives. Um, but he is a man who really deeply loves and cares about his family. And that comes through in the Liam sections. Mm-hmm. Although he doesn't always say that, it comes through clear. It comes through that he loves his family. It comes through that they love him and that this is difficult for them all to get through. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this family and each of the characters in this mother, father, son, they're all being tested in a way. I mean, they, this passage that they are working their way through, um, you know, in a different ending, they might have looked back and said, that was the moment we understood what we were made of, what this family, what held us together, who we are, what the identity of this family is. Let me explain something to uh, those of you in the audience who haven't uh, read Lightning Strike. Um, the story revolves around the death of an Ojibwe elder, a respected Ojibwe elder, and the the manner of his death is in question, uh, whether it was a suicide or not. The Ojibwe community sees it in one way. The white community perceives it in another. And Liam as sheriff is trying to understand the truth, and he's getting pressure from both sides in terms of how he handles the investigation. And that's really the source of the, in this particular story, the source of the conflict. And so each part of the family is feeling different kinds of pressure and having their own moral compasses, I would say, tested 
in this moment. Yeah, this is a story not just about conflict within the community. It's also conflict within the family. For sure. As a result of the mixture of the heritage and the marriage. Right. Um, we, t- we chatted a little bit about this downstairs. The As with the father and son relationship, the husband and wife relationship is also fraught and deep and loving and being tested in a way that a long marriage, you look back and say, that was the moment we figured out what we were made of. Will you describe a little bit about why why this husband and wife are also in conflict with the communities, but also in some conflict with themselves? Uh, Cork's mother is half Ojibwe. Cork's grandmother, Grandma Dulce, is a true-blood Iron Lake Ojibwe. Um, and so... Colleen, Cork's mother, is in the difficult position of wanting to support her husband and yet believing that he's not seeing the Ojibwe perspective in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she is really torn. Um, again, when you're writing a novel, a fiction, a piece of fiction, you're looking for conflict, and boy, is there a lot of it in this story. Um, and I think that that's although it's this particular issue right now that causes conflict I think if you're involved in any marriage any good marriage any good relationship that's long term there's gonna be conflict you're going to see things in, in very different ways and so a lot of what in my experience marriage is all about is coming to that place that you both can accept. Mm-hmm. Um, and Quirk's father and Quirk's mother are having real trouble getting there. Would you read a, a first excerpt? Sure. And that, and maybe you'll set this up a little bit, Kent. The, um, the death has occurred, and, uh, and Liam has uh, been investigating it for some time. And the Ojibwe community feels he's asking all the wrong questions and asking all the wrong people. And the white community just wants him to wrap it up because everybody knows what really happened in the white community. And uh, Liam and Colleen, his wife, talk about this a great deal. But the other thing that's going on in their relationship is Liam having to deal with the fact that Cork is growing and changing and becoming his own man And he's having some trouble with that as well. And that's kind of what's going on in this scene. What's wrong, Colleen asked. You haven't said two words since supper. He's growing up fast. Cork? Used to be when I suggested we toss the football. He was all over that. Now, it's one night, Liam. My father never tossed a football with me. Tell you what. When we finish the dishes, we'll go into the backyard and I'll throw you the football. (laughs) He smiled as he knew she intended, but shook his head. Work to do. Cop work? I'm going to talk to Mary Margaret. Alone? That's what I'm shooting for. Will Duncan allow that? If I'm lucky, he won't be there. When I talked to him in the guest cottage, it looked to me as if that might be where he's spending his nights now. If you ask me... After what he did to Mary Margaret, he should be spending his nights in jail. 
I'm doing my best to put him there. Does that mean you think Oscar Many Deeds is in the clear? (laughs) In the clear? You've been watching too many cop shows. But no, that's not what it means. Just following up on all the possibilities. She paused in her work, her hands deep in the soapy water, and looked at her husband steadily. Liam, you're not from here. You're a wonderful cop, and that's why you're our sheriff. But there are forces at work in this place that you can't possibly understand, emotions that run deep and go back to forever. You're walking a thin line, and... She took a wet hand from the sink and put it to his cheek. And what? There's a fire here that's raged for generations, and you're walking right into the middle of it. I'm wondering what will be left of you when you come out on the other side. Her wet hand was still held against his face, and drips of water crawled down his cheek with the same feel as tears. We're here with writer William Kent Kruger and his new novel, Lightning Strike, and I'm Carrie Miller. I want to come back to something you said, Kent, about um, your admiration for the Anishinaabe and your... I, th- I get the sense that you're constant learning about the culture. Um, and I read something that you wrote in 2011 uh, about the Anishinaabe and the influence on your novels. You said, if you read my stories, please don't read them as ethnography. The Anishinaabe are far more complex culturally, rich historically, and textured spiritually than I will ever be able to adequately portray them in my writing. But if I'm able to give you a sense of the admiration I feel for them, then I've succeeded. Okay, that was 2011. That was 10 years ago. You have learned more, written more about the Anishinaabe culture. What do you think you understand now that you've been able to write into your novels? Would you say the same thing today that you wrote there? Yeah, I was pretty amazed at myself when you read that. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Um... Because I really think that it expresses uh, perfectly how I continue to feel. Every time I sit down to write a Cork O'Connor novel, I'm painfully aware that I'm a white guy trespassing on a culture not my own. I have, I have no native um, heritage in me, not a drop of native blood at all. And so I, I, um, I work very hard to try to get what I do put into the books right. Um, and I check in with my friends in the Ojibwe community to, to try to make sure that I do that. Whenever I finish a manuscript, I have at least one or usually two of my Ojibwe friends read the manuscript uh, to vet it for me to make sure that I haven't said anything that's, uh, that's really stupid or even worse, offensive. Mm-hmm. But the issue, you know, of cultural appropriation is a, an important issue to discuss these mm-hmm. days. Um, and what I continue to point out to audiences is, is that I am a white guy. My perspective is not native. If you really want a native perspective, read Louise Erdrich, read Anton or, or David Truyer, mm-hmm. read um, any of the uh, fine native storytellers that, uh, that are publishing these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you... I mean, when you embarked on this, in this character, you began writing him, you said, in the early 90s. 
published in 98, right? So this issue of cultural appropriation was not as urgent then as it is now. Does this feel like it has gotten riskier to you over the years? Well, this continues to be an important area to discuss. Um, But, you know, I'm a storyteller. And if you believe you should only write about what you absolutely know, who you absolutely are, that's so limiting. As a storyteller, you look at the world and you, you look at all kinds of people and you observe and you, you make um, assumptions and you, um, and you create from that. And so I think it's, it's no... It, I think to say that a white person cannot write about a native person is about as ridiculous as saying a native writer can't write about a white person. It's all about, uh, first of all, trying to get it right, get it true. And it's all about um, <laughs> creating a good story. Mm-hmm. And if you write true, and you write a good story, I think that's all people can ask of you. I think I hear you saying, yes, it's, it may be a little riskier in this day and age, than it was when you started. I guess I want to ask you if you would do it the same way. If you were starting the series today... If I were starting the series today, I probably wouldn't (laughs) do the same series. (laughs) Um, But I am uh, so deeply into the uh, Cork O'Connor series uh, that... uh, that, Why why wouldn't you do the same? Why? Because of exactly this issue. It is such a, a significant issue that um, I probably wouldn't try to tackle it. Um, one of the things that was going on when I broke into the business, there really were not a lot of Native authors who were writing mysteries. That is changing rapidly. We have some fine uh, Native American mystery writers out there. I just, I'm going to recommend a book to all of you. There's a writer, um, a Dakota writer out of uh, South Dakota, a guy named David Wyden. Oh, so good. He, he, his debut novel uh, came out last year was a book called Winter Count. It is great. If you want a great mystery written from a Native perspective, read Winter Counts by David Wyden. Oh, so good. I had the... Here's the thing about that novel. Nothing really cataclysmic happens but he keeps this pulse beat of tension as little incidences kind of unfold here and there. It was masterful. It was a debut novel. It's really grounded in the reality of Rez life. You referenced this earlier, too. You know, we're seeing Cork as a a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, experience the first pernicious effects of racism. He's finding out what people say about him when he's not around. And he asks his friend George if he's ever heard people call Cork names because his mother is Native American. And you handle that scene with what I what I thought of as a light touch, 
but also with this awareness that this is this is kind of an earthquake in the way Cork will see his identity. Again, I'm interested in how you approach that scene and the writing of that scene. Well, it was creating a relationship between uh, two adolescent males that was very like a, a real relationship that I had. You and, and a friend from and a fr- that me, age? Yep, me and a friend. Right. And he was actually a little older uh, when we were friends, but it was easy for me to um, translate that into a relationship between 12, 13-year-old boys. And uh, so it was uh, j- just how friends talk. And if you remember in that scene, George says, well, yeah, people say those things about you. I thought you knew. Because they, George, uh, Jorge, Jorge, He's yes. George, but he goes by Jorge because he is, his mother is uh, Hispanic. Um, Jorge says, yeah, they say these things about me all the time. And the other friend who is Ojibwe says, yeah, I hear those things too. But this is the first time Cork has heard them about himself. And so it, he kind of plays it lightly, but you're absolutely right. It just cracks open a lot in him. It's also, this is so interesting the way you set this scene up, because these other two boys, as you said, oh, they're used to this. They're well initiated into what it means to live with the kind of racism of the day and um, in this town. But Cork has this kind of privilege, right? He's Mm -hmm. this young boy, he's a son of the sheriff, he's... Half Ojibwe, but he's half white. But he looks white. Right. And so we're also seeing him also realize how protected he's been so far from this. Yes? Yeah. And and it is the beginning of his understanding of the difficulty that his father has. I mean, now he's beginning to really understand... um, the racial pressures that are part of what his father has to deal with. He really is beginning to get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, he, I mean, he's no longer a kid. Um, he understands that people are saying bad things about him and his family. And what does he do about that? You know, what does he do about that? He really, there's nothing he can do about that except learn to live with it. What I wondered is, in all the novels that chronologically would have followed, but, you know, you've just written this, it's the prequel. If if we would be able to go back into this series and find moments that we would be able to connect straight to, that would arc right back to that that scene... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not sure they exist. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm not sure they exist in the way that I think you are, are hoping they do. Why? Um, because I've always written, with, with few exceptions, I've always written about Cork in the, in, the, in the current day, when he has come to accept that he's not quite white enough for the whites and he's not quite Ojibwe enough for the Ojibwe. Yeah. He has embraced that. It's still something that he's constantly aware of, but he doesn't struggle with it the way that he does in Lightning Strike. And so that was, 
for me, that was where Cork really began to embrace the fact that he, he's not going to be like anybody else. In fact, um, I can't remember if it's Sam Wintermoon or Henry Malou who tells him, you will always have a foot in two different, mm-hmm. two different places. Mm-hmm. And, and it will always be that way for you. And you need to figure out what you're going to do about that. So there might be what, kind of seeds of this in the series. But this is maybe the... Okay, seeds. I like that, Carrie. <laughs> Let's say there All are right. seeds. Okay. I bet you I could find some if I was going back in the series. Um, I want to ask you about something that, that you said to the New York Times by the book feature. Uh, you probably know what I'm going to ask you about. You said... I know. <laughs> Go ahead. I think a case can be made that there's a Midwest voice in literature. It's spare but eloquent and rises significantly out of an understanding of our spiritual relationship with the land here in the heartland. So I want to ask you what the complexities and the sound of the Midwestern voice. And I love the idea of that. But what does it sound like to you? Um, first of all, it's always good storytelling because here in the Midwest, we understand that a good story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. <laughs> and it has a point. <laughs> okay. Um. I say spare because, uh, you know, I think about writers uh, like Ted Couser, beautiful poet from Nebraska, um, or, although he's not really from the Midwest, he's close enough, um, one of my favorite writers, a guy named Kent Haroff, uh-huh. who set his work on the eastern plains of Colorado, and his work is just so straightforward and so s- simple on the surface, and yet his the compassion he feels for the people in the small towns of the plains comes through so clearly. And, and his understanding of why the people are there and what keeps them there, what keeps us in this, tied to this land, is uh, so clear. And I think you, I think you see that in... Um, I think you see it in Marilyn Robinson. I was just going to ask you about Marilyn her. Robinson. Her work is just so brilliant and so beautiful. Um, and very lyrical, but I would say it's not prosaic uh, and I think that, that that's what the Midwest is we say things very clearly very plainly sometimes very simply but eloquently mm-hmm. and, and the spirituality and the compassion that I think is a part of being Midwest comes through that's why I live here um Marilyn Robinson, such a good example of this, because there is, even though, as you say, her characters and her novels, there is plain speaking. Of course, there's many, many dimensions to her novels. But you know, there is no cynicism about some of these, like some of her novels are about what does it mean to forgive and she comes at that in a way that does not have that kind of, but we all know 
what I think of as kind of a, a cynicism to it. It's a true, deep examination. Thank you. That is, that is something, that is a characteristic that I've been trying to figure out, and it's the lack of cynicism. Mm-hmm. You know, we, which I think of as very <laughs> East Coast, um, yeah. West Coast, um, but here in the Midwest, we don't have that. Or it's, it's not a characteristic that I think of when I think of Midwesterners. I th- I, when I think of the way you've described this, I think of we are okay without the presence of irony, <laughs> right? I mean, everybody doesn't have to be in on the side joke, right? What, what do you think? Yeah. Why did that make you laugh? I absolutely agree. You know, for me, um, give me a story that's told clearly, a story that's told simply, a story that in how it is told gets its point across. The stories, Marilyn Robinson, her stories are very deep. Yeah. Kent Harreff, his stories are really deep, but the telling of them is very simple. Right. You know, they're very approachable. That's a masterful thing to pull off, isn't it, for oh, a absolutely. writer? Absolutely. That, that, that approachability. Um, but I think a story, um, a, a good story ought to be, you ought to be able to read a good story regardless of who you are or um, what kind of complicated tastes you think you might have. When I write a story... What I want to do is appeal to a very broad demographic. I want precocious 12-year-olds to be able to read my books and enjoy them, as well as their grandparents. You know, and I want to write a story that they can share, that they can talk about, um, that they can become emotionally invested in, and yet have some thinking about something a little deeper even, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about the Boundary Waters. Um, so I have... I had my first experience, believe it or not, in the Boundary Waters this fall. I just, I think it was kind of beyond my imagination. I used to think it's, I I didn't know what I didn't know about the Boundary Waters. And I really would like to understand your, because you've been there a lot, you write about it. What, What, tell me a little bit about why it is such a sacred place to you. For just the reason I was talking about the Midwest, with the heartland, and the, the Boundary Waters is a little outside the heartland, mm-hmm. but it, the, the, spirit, the, the spirit of the, the, of the Boundary Waters is profound. Any of you who have been in the Boundary Waters, you know that. The minute you're in the Boundary Waters, it speaks to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, And it's not just that it speaks to you in terms of the sounds that it gives you, the water and the birds and the, the wind and the pines and all of that, uh, or, or the sense that you get of how it comes to you that way. It comes to you in a very spiritual way. And I, I challenge anybody to go into the Boundary Waters and come out believing there is no God. <laughs> Sacred. Sacred. There are sacred places, and the Boundary Waters is certainly one of them. 